Thanks for downloading this episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene. Since you like podcasts, can I assume you also like audiobooks? If so, be sure to visit audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet for a free 30-day trial to Audible, which has a massive library of audiobooks. The address again is audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. And both Audible Trial and Bionic Planet are spelled out as one word, no dots, dashes, or spaces, as opposed to my website, which is bionic-planet.com. Under the Paris Agreement, countries were asked to present their own climate action plans, their strategies for slashing greenhouse gas emissions based on their own unique circumstances. 90% of these action plans, technically called NDCs for Nationally Determined Contributions, incorporated farming fixes or shifts to sustainable agriculture, making sure farms absorb greenhouse gases instead of emitting them. And that led to a major breakthrough this week at year-end climate talks here in Bonn, Germany. Today's episode is a bionic bonus. If you're one of those wonderful people who pay to keep this going, you won't be charged for this one because it's going to be part of a longer episode in the next week or so. But I want to share this interview for the climate geeks and wonks and just the generally curious. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we're coming to you from year-end climate talks in Bonn, Germany, where we're speaking with Tanya Rawa, who runs the Food and Nutrition Security Program at CARE International. CARE is a humanitarian aid organization formed in the wake of World War II, but it's become a key player in the environmental space as well, especially when subsistence farmers are involved. It took me a long time to realize how difficult it is to get almost 200 countries to agree on anything, especially if it impacts your economy as farming inevitably does. In these climate talks, farming is really important because poorly managed farms emit methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen, three key greenhouse gases, while well-run farms absorb them. 
We should, therefore, be able to slash greenhouse gases dramatically by shifting to climate-safe agriculture, which can actually increase farmers' yields, as we've seen in earlier episodes of Bionic Planet and we'll see again. So, climate-safe agriculture can be good for farmers, but small-scale farmers in developing countries have always been worried about the way mandates could play out in these talks. Basically, they're afraid that any agreement to impose restrictions on greenhouse gases from agriculture would hit them hardest, and with good reason. But then the Paris Agreement came along, and they all realized that almost every country on the planet wanted to slash its emissions by fixing its farms. What they didn't have was an agreement on how to do that. What they achieved in Bonn was agreement, not on how to do that, but on how to reach agreement about how to do that. Which might not sound like much, but again, try getting 200 countries to agree on anything. I'm running my chat with Tanya Ra, with no interjections to explain things and probably without enough context here in the front, partly because it is a breaking story, but also because I'll be revisiting this in a later episode. If you don't understand everything she says, then subscribe to Bionic Planet so you can get the episode that this is clipped from. I started by asking her why everyone was celebrating yesterday's decision. Absolutely. Parties spent a lot of long hours talking about what needs to happen next in the UN climate talks around the issue of agriculture. And yesterday they decided to forward a draft decision to the full COP that really calls on two specific subsidiary bodies, two bodies that look at both scientific and technological issues as well as issues on implementation. And they called on those two bodies to work together to tackle issues around agriculture, to better understand what that means in the context of climate change, especially given the vulnerability of agriculture to climate impacts, and then also what that work means because of food security, given that agriculture is fundamentally the basis of every single person's food security. No, and this is really what's interesting to me. I know enough about the, how these, these talks to know about the two different bodies. You've got the, the subsidiary body on What's Substick and the Subsidiary Body on Science and Technology? It's the subsidiary, subsidiary Body on Scientific and Technological Advice. Right, and they their job is to look at all the technical issues, and then you've got the Subsidiary Body on Implementation, and their job is to look at what the policy is actually going to be, right? And then SBI, the Subsidiary Body on Implementation, will come up with a policy idea, and then they'll say, let's send it to the science guys, and they'll kick it around, and then work out work out those details, and then they'll kick it back to us. That's kind of the way it works, right? It doesn't necessarily have to go through a perfect sequence, um, but each of the two subsidiary bodies has a slightly different mandate. As you said, one looking at some of the scientific and technological issues, and the other one really figuring out, okay, what are some of the issues we need to tackle to make sure that we're implementing the fundamental convention decisions like the Paris Agreement? Okay, and from now on, they're going to be working more closely together, it sounds like. Okay, and that's, that's a pretty big deal. Judging by, and I, I don't really understand why, I think it, we might need a little bit of a historical perspective. If you can kind of walk us through that. Absolutely. Um, so it, the subsidiary body on scientific and technological advice, SUBSTA, was asked by the COP in 2011, so six years ago, to look at issues related to agriculture. And countries, or parties as we're calling them here, they were told to exchange views and then decide what kind of decision the COP should make. That was in 2011. Since 2011 then, parties have looked at five issues in workshops. 
Those have been issues around the state of the science and knowledge around adaptation and agriculture, around early warning systems in agriculture, vulnerability assessments for the agriculture sector, then also beginning to look at adaptation practices. How do we make sure that agriculture is able to respond to the changing climate around it when we're also trying to end hunger and malnutrition? And then also finally looking at different practices that support sustainable agriculture and food security and ultimately resilience to climate change. So they looked at all five of those issues and then they needed to decide, well, what do we do next? And when they got this mandate, it was 2011. But we all know that in 2015, we also ended up with the Paris Agreement. So there's now a lot of implementation going on at a national level, at a local level. We saw in the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions that countries submitted, that about 90% of countries that submitted an NDC included agriculture for either mitigation or for adaptation issues. So when we look at how many countries included agriculture in their NDCs, we know that there's a lot of implementation going on. So as parties have then had a chance to say, well, we talked about five things, what should we do next? post Paris, what should we do next? There's really a need to talk about implementation. Right, right. It's not just the scientific and technological issues. And that was really something that G77 was working very strongly for, to make sure that they were able to have that more open conversation. So what you, after Paris, you realized, oh my God, all these countries are looking to reduce their emissions and to adapt by improving their agricultural systems, making them more absorbent of carbon dioxide, emitting less methane, and then also just being more sustainable. But there wasn't any real science on, on that, or what, what, was, what was lacking in these NDCs? I think, it, I think it is more of a general thing. Since the mandate was given to Substan in 2011, there's been a tremendous increase in the amount of attention on this agriculture climate change nexus. Because agriculture is highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, but is also a source of greenhouse gas emissions. And yet it's also then a source of food and livelihood for hundreds of millions of people. So it's this really complex nexus of challenging issues, climate change, resilience, and hunger. So how do you begin to look at all of those in the same conversation? Because the same year we had the Paris Agreement, we also had the Sustainable Development Goals. And when you look at those 17 goals, you can really see how it's a matrixed way that we need to begin looking at the challenges we face. So coming into the discussions here and over the last year really, talking with different parties about what they can and should be doing on agriculture, there was a big push from civil society as well to have a more holistic conversation, mm. to talk not just about the emerging science and not just about different technologies and know-how, but to also begin talking with countries about what they're implementing, the challenges they're facing, what kinds of support may be needed to enable them to take more action. Okay, and I guess, and that brings us up to what happened yesterday. Can you maybe, can you walk us through that? I sure can. So it, parties, this is the third session where parties have really tried to negotiate some kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. um, they started in earnest last year in Marrakesh once they had concluded workshops and then they continued in May earlier this year. So this is the third time they've come back together. Mm. Um, so the, the draft decision that they're putting forward is really a hard fought piece of work. Mm. Um, so there, there was actually quite a lot of celebration uh, last night when everybody realized there is the agreement on this, <laughs> yes. And, and what parties have said to, decided to do is twofold. Mm. 
Well, threefold. First and foremost, those two subsidiary bodies on implementation and scientific and technological advice, they're going to work together. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer necessarily an artificial divide between them. You need science to implement, but once you implement, you have more questions for science, and it's a back and forth. They also then, over the next three years, they want to do two things. One, take a look at what they did in those first five workshops and decide whether they need to do something next. Mm -hmm. Because those first five workshops were just in Substa. Mm -hmm. So what might need to happen around implementation to make sure that what was learned in those workshops has moved forward? Right, right, right. And then they also are taking a look, quite likely, at five new topics beginning to dig into some more technical issues around soil, around nutrient and manure management, mm -hmm. around livestock, around how you assess adaptation and resilience in agriculture, and then also beginning to look at the socioeconomic and food security aspects of that climate change agriculture nexus. So they have some new things that they want to unpack and this time, not just from that scientific and technological perspective, but also from the implementation perspective. It's interesting you also how many how these things all fit together. You talked about the sustainable development goals, providing guidance, and that that could also impact funding. I, I guess right. I mean, because big banks are tying their lending practices to projects that support the development goals, right? That's that's kind of one of the questions on the table, and and something that a lot of civil society is looking at this new effort. Um, to, to begin talking about is what does any kind of finance need to support when it comes to looking at agriculture and climate change? We're looking at some of the, the protections we want to make sure are in place as you have small-scale food producers with insecure land tenure or the kinds of agriculture practices that maybe should be prioritized because they're the ones that help reduce emissions more and build resilience most. So we're hoping that that can also be part of the conversation what should we be financing? What are some of the concrete developments you see coming out of this? Like, what are some areas that can really, really, we really need improvement? Are you talking like small, small farmers? Uh, there are a number of things they can look at. The, the first, as I mentioned, is really beginning to think about what, what kinds of criteria or guidelines or best practices can be identified for action in the agriculture sector particularly as you look at how you implement that action while enhancing food security, protecting rights, advancing gender equality. So there are two key pieces of critical science coming out in the next two years. Next year we have a special report from the IPCC on one and a half degrees. What does one and a half degrees mean in terms of mitigation pathways? and in terms of adaptation and impacts. So that is actually quite critical for the agriculture sector. Again, because it's both vulnerable and a source of emissions. So that's an enormous piece of work that they can pick up jointly to discuss. And then again in 2019, we have another special IPCC report coming out on land, climate change, and food security. Mm -hmm. And that is squarely in their mandate. So that is a good piece of work that can really inform their conversations and then also help them identify what they do need to do. Mm -hmm. Are there different kinds of guidelines for countries so that they can take more action? Mm -hmm. Is there a lack of support, whether it's capacity building, financial support, or technology development? What kind of support is missing again, to enable every country to increase their ambition. Because the only way we achieve that one and a half degree goal is with every country increasing its ambition. Some of the issues that we've looked at on, on the podcast and, and on Ecosystem Marketplace, we look at issues like um, 
uh, mitigation banking, biodiversity banking in the U.S. And we look at issues like sustainable agriculture in general and programs that use, say, carbon finance to promote agroforestry. I'm not clear on how this decision at agriculture within, you know, within the UNFCCC, how does that impact all of these other efforts? I think we're hoping that this new joint work effort by SBI and Substa can in many ways be an umbrella. So that as action is taken forward under different practices, under different financing options, there are some standards that make sure that whatever action is done, it continues to help us achieve the goals that we all want to achieve, not just in the climate space, but also in the biodiversity space, the poverty space, and the human rights space. And that's something where there's been a lot of concern about how action is implemented in the agriculture sector. Land tenure is not very secure for a lot of people. So if you start really putting value on soil in on carbon in the soil, what does that end up meaning for them? How do you make sure that they're benefiting from whatever kinds of efforts are going forward? So from where we stand as as care, it's it's not when something happens or whether it should happen. It's if it happens, these things need to be in place to make sure that it's done well, it's done right, and it achieves goals. And that's what this kind of process can help us begin to unpack. And, and my understanding, too, on these two subsidiary bodies is a lot of them are the same people, right? So that should make it easy to move forward. That's one thing that we look at as well. It, again, it's, it's sometimes an artificial divide. You have a negotiator on agriculture, and that negotiator is sitting in Substa, sitting in SBI, sitting in what used to be the LCA. Mm-hmm. It's a negotiator on agriculture. They're a technical expert on the issue. And so you begin to have a group of people who've developed good relationships. We saw that last night when all the negotiators were incredibly thrilled that their agriculture family had, you know, succeeded in coming up with an outcome. So you have a lot of the same people, and that does help you have a sustained conversation. Another another issue that we're, we're always trying to look at is, you know, these companies that are trying to have sustainable supply chains and how, you know, how, how their purchasing decisions impact people on the ground. How does that feed into this whole process? Or how does this process feed into it? It's it's not wholly clear yet. The, the decision that they wrote yesterday is is fairly brief and so there's work to be done going forward to figure out how all these pieces are connected but there is an opportunity to make sure that they are connected so that finance flows through national governments are again sort of fitting within basic guidelines around what really should be happening Um, it's also a chance really because so many people come to the UNFCCC meetings. It's you know tens of thousands of people every year. This is also a very big convening space. And so as countries are talking about how they want to see action unfold, it's really a chance for other actors, whether they're NGOs, international organizations, or the private sector, to take cues from this process. As the parties then continue this conversation, though, about agriculture, there is also an opportunity to broaden it and begin to look at supply chains, to begin to look at the impacts of climate change on the entire value chain, but also the impacts of the entire value chain on climate change, to begin to take that whole food systems approach. Um, So that's also an opportunity. Um, It's an opportunity to perhaps begin to unpack some more challenging conversations like sustainable consumption. It's a space where we can begin to have that holistic conversation because the agriculture climate food nexus is so complex. Whether it's food loss and waste or 
transport in the food sector or basic consumption patterns in different countries and what that begins to look like for different people. There's a lot that can be covered. Anything we missed? Anything we should have talked about but didn't? I think broadly speaking, the, the big takeaway is that after six years of talking about these issues, there has been a firm recognition that we still need to talk about them. It's critically important, and it's no longer just about agriculture. It's also about food security. Um, it's, there were a lot of congratulations last night because it has been a lot of hard work, but they've come a long way. There's more work to be done, but for now, we're cautiously optimistic that this will go through the COP with no problems. and we can keep moving forward. That's Tanya Rawa of CARE International wrapping up this bonus edition of Bionic Planet coming to you from year-end climate talks in Bonn, Germany. If you like what you hear, be sure to give me a good rating on whichever service you access me through, or you can become a patron and support me directly at bionic-planet.com for as little as $1 a month. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Bonn, Germany. Thanks for listening.